Today, we are going to continue our series uh, on a topic entitled Peter, a Living Hope. And today, we're going to actually get into the very first letter uh, that Peter wrote. And we're going to do a three-part series that I'm going to teach over the next three weeks entitled Fiercely Faithful. Today, we're going to cover part one, which is identity. Next week, we're going to cover part two, which is fidelity. And the week after, because apparently I get criticized for being very intellectual, academic, and using big words, we're going to use the next uh, third part is going to be teleology. So uh, for those of you who want to scratch that itch, and I'll explain what, a little bit of what that means when we get there, but to uh, give you a little bit of a heads up of where we're headed, today we're going to talk about identity, next week fidelity, and then week three we're going to talk about teleology. Are you ready to rock and roll? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so let's get started in the letter to First Peter, and then I'd like to give you uh, a little bit of a survey of where in the world letters like this came from and why in the world they became so powerful and meaningful and how they can be reclaimed as that same level of power and meaning today. First Peter chapter 1 starts off this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. There's that phrase where we get our title. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Rejoice in this, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your lives. Some of the reasons why those brackets are there is because the NRSVUE translation uses certain words that I wanted to replace. For example, the NRSV uses the word souls there, and I like the word lives better. So if you want to talk to me about that afterwards, you're more than welcome to. Much of what we just read there should not be surprising to any of you who have any familiarity with Christianity. If this is your first introduction or are curious, have some serious questions about what this faith is, you are in the right place. We welcome you and all of your questions. But the vast majority of what we just read is really honestly not terribly surprising. If you've gone through a little bit of the Jesus story, a little bit of what Paul has written, a little bit of Christian, basic Christian theology, salvation, holiness, sprinkled by his blood from Leviticus, all these kinds of things. These are actually very familiar ideas. These aren't things that are new, refreshed, brand new, never heard of things before. 
What Peter is doing throughout his letters, what I will propose to you, is very much commensurate with what Samuel Johnson has coined or has said, people need to be reminded more than they need to be instructed. This is a fundamental leadership principle, by the way. Uh, This has been taken and extrapolated in organizational theory and leadership that you don't need to tell people. Generally speaking, you just need to remind them, and you need to remind them over and over and over in different ways and in different contexts. But the fundamental truth or the fundamental story, the fundamental principle hasn't really changed. So what Peter is doing here is reminding his people that are spread throughout this land who you are, what you're doing here, and what kind of end result your lives should actually get. So throughout the rest of the letter, you're going to get things that, if extracted from the context, might seem a little bit odd to modern sensibilities and modern ears. For example, you're going to get, you should be pure and holy. These are, a, these, this is a, one of the themes of First Peter. You are to be honorable in your behavior. So much so, fascinatingly enough, and this seems really weird, Peter is even going to suggest that you honor the emperor. Excuse me? The emperor? I thought there was nobody above God. We just said the Shema, the love the Lord your God, the only one that exists. And Peter's going to suggest honor the emperor? This seems honestly completely antithetical. Then there's the problematic passages that a lot of people appeal to and uh, argue about and really complain about the Bible, which are the household codes. Things like slaves, obey your masters, and wives, submit to your husbands, and these kinds of things. That's going to come later. Don't worry, we're going to get there for those of you who are already having a little PTSD right now. So we're going to get there, and what we're going to hopefully do is contextualize what those things are doing there. But again, remember the setup is I need to remind you of some things and who you are and what you're doing here. A fundamental theme throughout this entire letter is going to be suffering. Once again, we don't talk about this much in the global capital C church. Suffering is not a prominent theme. You don't come to church because you want to hear how you can suffer better. That's generally not what you want to walk away from. But yet, here it is. It's in this letter. Peter is going to exhort and encourage the people that are receiving his letter. This is how you are to suffer. And the suffering is not going away anytime soon. So what he does in the setup as to who you are, what you're doing here, your identity, uh, your ancestry, your fidelity, and then your teleology, which we'll get to, are fundamental to the argument he's going to make for how you engage with suffering. And uh, I I still want to give you all three talks right now, but it's brilliant what I think he is doing there. And then, for those of you who have been with us over the last several weeks, you know that Danielle and others have given us a little bit of a glimpse into the history of Peter. And what fundamentally has happened is that Peter, under the tutelage and discipleship of Jesus, under learning, under the great shepherd, he is now commissioned to be a shepherd. And as a good shepherd does, he's now going to encourage the recipients of this letter to now also go and be good shepherds. So you start to see this theme. Fundamentally, at the very beginning, the first thing to notice is this location here. To the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Anybody been to those places? No? Okay, we've got a couple people that visit a couple of those locations. We are talking about a very distant place. And one of the things that's problematic for us modern readers of an ancient text is that we are distant, both in time and in place. 
when we're talking about this location, we're talking about this little isthmus, Istanbul, Turkey, what is modern-day Turkey, and you can see that here there are regions that are very much like maybe counties or states, depending upon how you want to put it. But unlike other letters, although we have a couple of these in the New Testament, this is sent to a wide swath of people. Not, some of the letters are like to direct persons, but this seems to be one of those general letters that goes to a lot of people. So if you happen to be a Christian, somebody who is following Jesus in this area, this letter is for you, okay? So these are people that are head out to a foreign land from their homeland. They are supposed to live a certain way in this location that doesn't necessarily hold to the same values or worldviews that they hold. And here's the fundamental message. I'll sum it up in two words for you. This is all you need. Well, the three words at the beginning, and now the two words that sum up the entire message, be faithful. This is going to be the entirety of the message. Be faithful. Jesus has saved you. You have committed yourself to Jesus. You're now in a foreign land. Be faithful. Don't forsake the covenant, the relationship, and the goodness of God while you are there. And if that sounds familiar to some of you, you would be correct. We actually have a lot of these letters and this kind of writing in your Bible. Does anybody know the Jeremiah, famous Jeremiah 29, 11 passage? That passage comes in the context of the exact same kind of circumstance that Peter's audience is. Faithful people who are now in a foreign land. And for those of you who know the story, they were taken there not by their own will, extracted out from the land by a foreign power, and now living essentially as slaves and indentured servants and trying to make a new life. And Jeremiah writes to these people as well as Baruch, which is a letter that's in a different part of your Bibles. They write these letters to say, be faithful, stay with it. And they tell stories like Daniel with Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Some of you know the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are people that have been taken out of their land and put in a foreign land and say, and, and then this whole book, this writing is say, be faithful, don't give up, stick to what you know is true and right, be committed to your covenant. And 1 Peter comes along in that same line. Does anybody remember the land that they went to back then? In Jeremiah, Baruch, what was that place called? Does anybody remember? Babylon. This is a location that has all sorts of development, culture, technology, politics, uh, amazing structures. If anybody has ever heard of the Hanging Towers of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, I don't know what you have in your mind as to maybe some backwoods people, ancient people that didn't really know much. This was an incredibly sophisticated, highly technologically advanced civilization that did things that nobody has ever done before. Your story of the Tower of Babel is most likely referring to the Hanging Towers of Babylon because they're like, what in the world does a civilization like this do? How, how did they build this structure? And it is to the people in this land that he says, be faithful. Now, does anybody know what location Peter is now going to reference? What location, what place or time is the setting for the exiles or the distant people in Peter's time? That's gonna be Rome, the Roman Empire. 
And very much like Babylon, in that day, highly advanced, technologically advanced, politically uh, amazingly powerful, very smart and intricate, well-developed culture, Rome is going to actually have the same kind of a thing. And it's fascinating when you compare the two because you go, not much has actually changed. Back in the Old Testament, when faithful people who are committed to God go to a foreign land, they are like awed at the amazing technological advances. They're doing it again here, just now in the first century, right after Jesus, when Rome has now become the power. And what's fascinating is that Peter actually makes this reference. At the very end of his letter, he, said, he tells them, because he's writing actually from Rome, as he encourages all those people, your sister church in Babylon. Babylon. He's equating the Roman Empire with that ancient civilization that the people would have known and understood. Just like Daniel was faithful in Babylon, so you too, my friends, ought to be faithful here in Rome. And just to make it crystal clear, your sister church in Babylon sends you, together with you, sends you greetings. So this is going to be the setting. First Peter is writing to people who have been committed to God, committed to God, committed to Jesus, trying to follow faithfully in this way. But they find themselves in a foreign land, in a place that is technologically advanced, who has ideas and politics and culture and ways of being, philosophy, worldview, worship, all sorts of things that is absolutely foreign to what a follower of Jesus should be a part of. And Peter is going to write this letter to say, Stay with it, my friends. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget your story. Be faithful. Even here, when you see the Colosseum, when you see the roads, when you see the soldiers, when you see the politics and the money and the economy, when all of that is surrounding you, be faithful. Stay with it. So this is what we're going to do. I'd like to give you a little bit of an impression as to what kind of world they were living in to let you know that they had a difficult task ahead of them, which is why Peter, the great shepherd, is writing this letter. And in accordance with Samuel Johnson, not to tell them what to do, but to simply be reminded. To understand this context, you need to understand two people, really. That's all you need to know. The first is Romulus, the founder of Rome, April 21st, 753 BCE. And then, of course, you really need to know this guy, Alexander the Great, from the 4th century BC. And what these two people did in the 1st century and beyond is nothing short of miraculous. It's astonishing, actually, in the course of civilization. And you and I are actually inheritors of what they did. Let's start with Alexander the Great very briefly. I found this photorealistic picture. People are starting to do that. That's creepy to me to see that <laughs> picture, to be honest with you. There's an ancient depiction of Alexander the Great. Uh, at the age of 19, he becomes commander. There's a whole bunch of history and drama that's surrounding him. But he starts over here in Macedon. He's the son of Philip II. You have a letter in your Bible to a church in a city founded by Philip's father named... Philippians. 
Philip II became the founder of that city, so you have that letter. So he starts in Macedon, and you can see the journey, the conquering conquest, and he makes it all the way over to the Indus Valley in India and dies at the age of 23. Uh, excuse me, it dies, it dies at the age of 33. From 19 to 33, he conquers this entire land. For those of you who know the city Kandahar in India, it's named after Alexander. Now, when Alexander shows up on the scene and he begins to conquer, no doubt he's a great military warrior, but that's not really what we know him for, and it's not really the most important thing when it comes to religion and faith and society and culture. He was fundamentally a cultural architect, and what some might say, let's use Silicon Valley language, he was a brand evangelist for the Hellenistic, the Greek way of life. He developed and instituted all sorts of cultural developments, one of them being temples, where you could go and listen and participate in the worship of the great gods and the pantheon of the Greeks, whether that was Aphrodite or Demeter or Apollo or Zeus. And you would participate in this grandiose, grandiose kind of uh, celebration and parties and uh, commemorations of the gods and who they are and what they did for you. In addition to the temples, he also built theaters. This is one in Epidaurus. It's an incredible, they hold something like 20,000 people. This one I think is smaller. The one in Ephesus is absolutely huge and astonishing. Here in the theaters, you get to go and participate and listen to drama and acting and song. And through the theater, Alexander and the entire Greek apparatus is communicating to you what life should be like. What are the values of Greek culture? In addition to that, there are these arenas where, where sports happened, where you could see incredible feats of strength and agility. Uh, the Greeks thought that the naked body was the most beautiful of all things. So you would train naked, you would participate naked, you would compete naked. It was an incredible, astonishing sight to see strong men and javelin throwers and discus throwers. Uh, the Olympics got started in, in Greece, which we are inheritors to this particular day. He can submit people from this position alone without even the choke. Dancing 20 seconds remain. Silva trying to finish. And then one of the four things, this is, these are just a small snippet. One of, the, one of the other things that he developed was the gymnasium. And the gymnasium, Gymnos, is actually the place of nakedness. Now you can see a picture of two people wrestling here. But what is fundamentally developed in the gymnasium is the place of philosophy, where you get to hear and listen. So Socrates says, wow, Euthyphro. You must really know what you're talking about when it comes to morality. And Euthyphro says, referring so to So you himself, go to the gymnasium you know, to learn about profound philosophy, ideas that you've never heard about, truths and instruction and ideas that come from all sorts of different parts of the world. Picture yourself as a religious person, specifically a religious Jew during this time, and your entire life was spent studying Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and primarily just Leviticus, especially if you were girls. And you participated in the home, you participated in uh, the harvest, you participated in the ceremonies and the traditions of your family. And then all of this stuff comes into town, and you hear about sports and activities, you hear about philosophy and brilliant ideas, you see gods and goddesses that have amazingly ornate, huge temples, and there's all sorts of celebrations of these gods, and, and your god doesn't have any of that stuff. What begins to go through your mind? How do you maintain faithfulness? 
when stuff like this shows up. Well, two, we could spend forever talking about Hellenism and the development of Greek culture in this particular time, which is really critical. Romulus uh, and the founding of Rome and the development of the Roman Empire basically took everything from the Greeks. I call the Romans pirates because they don't really invent anything. They just take a bunch of things and claim it as their own. So they take all of this stuff and say, we like that, we're going to continue that, and we're going to add to that our particular veneer in our particular culture. One of them is going to be known as the Roman patronage system, the hierarchy. You know that the emperor is on top. You've heard of the word plebeian, or you, then you heard the word slaves, and you have the equestrians, and there's a very intricate hierarchy that exists. Within that hierarchy, there's a patronage system. This is going to be extremely critical to understand when we get to the slaves and the wives and the husbands' passages in these letters. Because this context forms the situation that these people were in. That patronage system was a quid pro quo kind of relationship. The patron giving the client protection, money, funds, status. And the client is supposed to give the patron honor, service, and this kind of exchange and relationship. And the entire Roman society was built upon this kind of system. Now, the system worked. For those of you listening to the podcast, I'm using scare quotes. The system worked in the sense that it accomplished what the Romans wanted. But life for these particular people was obviously very different depending upon where you were within that social hierarchy. For example, if you happened to be on the lower end and you were going to essentially be subject to the whims and the desires of the people above you, you may actually participate in gladiator games. And as a slave, if you had no other way to get out of the situation and circumstance you were in, you might be sent essentially to the arena. Now, again, you could study this forever. It's incredibly fascinating. I wanna just give you an impression of the kind of context in which they are in. Rome, of course, laid 50,000 miles, according to some scholars. I think that number's higher depending upon who you study. 50,000 miles of paved road. Some of you who have studied this know this, that the Roman road system became an incredibly important worldwide cultural transformation that allowed the passage of trade, and then with the passage of trade comes the passage of ideas and thoughts and cultures and goods and services. They created this incredible cement, by the way, that technologists, that people, construction people today are actually trying to reverse engineer. We don't know how they did it. They're coming really, really close because this cement that they invented way back in the first century still exists today under seawater. It's an incredible technology. And that technology allowed the building and the construction, which is part of the reason why you can go to Rome and see the Colosseum today because of the kind of technology they had. And once again, the kind of world that they constructed is kind of mind-blowing. Common farmers, sheep herders, people who worked with wheat and maybe clay, seeing this, seeing this kind of world, would blow your mind. What, how did they come up with that? How did they study that? How did they learn that? How did they build such magnificent buildings that are overwhelming? The most important element, of course, of Rome is the thing called the Pax Romana, which stands for the Peace of Rome. And peace, the Peace of Rome is a, cr- a really incredibly important element for the first century culture 
Because what it established is the free flow, that transportation piece, and to ensure that there was safety, security, and stability. It's really hard to develop an economic culture, a fundamental uh, political culture, without a lot of peace. And so the peace of Rome established this and created, honestly, one of the most thriving and developmental periods in ancient history that we have. Of course, the problem with all of this stuff is that there are consequences. This is one of the quotes from Virgil from, uh, from the uh, first century BCE. Peace is the inevitable consequence of the achievement of world empire by virtue of the simple fact that there is no one left to fight. And in, August, uh, in Augustan ideology, the themes of universal rule and the Pax Augusta go hand in hand. Do you hear what he's saying? What's he saying? He's saying, that's great. We have common language, infrastructure. We have a common legal system. We have military protection. We have uh, military protection against uh, piracy and slavery revolts and banditry. But the reason why we have this peace is because we've killed everyone else that would come against us. We have slaughtered everyone. If you ever have known the phrase that history is written by the victors, this is not a bad example. You can call it the peace of Rome, but every single piece of historical evidence that we have would suggest that that peace came at the destruction of other people who did not want their I went through a lot, and I apologize for speaking fast. I wanted to give you an impression that the first followers of Jesus followed an itinerant teacher in the backwoods of Galilee, pretty much unknown by anybody, not very sophisticated, quote, technologically, politically, some might even say philosophically and ideologically. They didn't have much to show for their lives. And those followers of Jesus go into a world that is highly sophisticated, technologically advanced, religiously plural, fantastically ornate, things that you had never seen before seducing you because you want to participate, because you see the theater and the acting and the sports, and you hear the incredible insights of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and Heracles. You want to know more about this. But yet in that world, they don't worship the same God you worship. They don't have the same values that you have. They do not teach love your neighbor as yourself. They do not teach love your enemy. They do not teach compassion and justice. These are not things that are familiar to those worlds. In fact, they are completely antithetical. And the question is, if you were a follower of Jesus in that world, what do you do? James Jeffries in his book, Greco-Roman world of the New Testament era posits a conversation that two people are having in the Roman world. And finally, at the end of this conversation, there is this kind of exasperation. You're supposed to follow God. You're supposed to be faithful. You're supposed to live out the commandments. 
You're supposed to be covenant faithful to Yahweh, to Jesus. Live that way. But you live in this world. And finally, at the end, there's kind of this exasperation. And one of the people in this conversation says this. If you were in my place, what would you do? Would you try to fight against a power vastly superior to yours that you know has so far been unbeatable by anyone? Would you resist the people that, while at times insensitive to your beliefs and practices, for the most part, allows you to pursue them in peace? A peace never known in this part of the world except perhaps at the height of King David's power. Would you refuse, out of principle, to adopt those elements of Roman culture that are not necessarily in conflict with Jewish beliefs and values? Only if you are a fool, he says with a laugh. Do you feel the tension? How do you not become Roman when you live in this world even though you committed to Jesus? This, my friends, is the great question. How do you do that? We have a lot of evidence to suggest that the early Jews of that time, many of them, many people and even including people that were part of these religious movements didn't. They succumbed. They sold themselves out. First Maccabees is a book in your middle of your Bible called the Apocrypha, and they write about how the Jews of Jerusalem, the place where Yahweh placed his name, they built a gymnasium, a place of nakedness, a place of Greek philosophy. Excuse me? Why did you build a gymnasium right next to the temple that worships Yahweh. Herod the Great, the king of the Jews, one of his most prized possessions is his Olympic wreath that he won in a javelin-throwing contest during one of the Hellenistic Games. We have early sources that, from Jewish writings that say, if you ever go to a theater, you are damned. You will not inherit the world that is to come, which is kind of a hint that people were going to the theater. And I'm terribly sorry for any of the young ones in the room or whatever discretion is necessary. There was even prohibitions against removing the signs of the covenant for boys. What does that mean? Well, if you're a good Jewish boy, what is a good mark of the covenant? I'll just, yeah, thank you so much for the visual there. I appreciate that. And we have plenty of evidence to suggest that 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old boys were going through a process called reverse circumcision so that they could participate in the games. And we have writings that say, cursed is anybody who removes the mark of the covenant. In other words, these boys that were raised to love God, to follow in the covenant of Abraham, to be faithful to Yahweh, were seduced into this culture to live in that way because haven't you seen these great wrestling matches, the javelin throw, the discus, the jumps, the running? I want to do that too. And because the Greeks thought that any 
change of the human body was a complete abomination. Why would you change this beautiful form that we have boys going through a process to remove that sign? And once again, the question has emerged in this time and now in this letter to Peter, who actually are you? And this is where we get to the thrust of what Peter is doing at the very beginning and what these letters are attempting to do for people who live in this world. Who are you? Are you really truly covenanted with Yahweh? Are you really truly a follower of Jesus? Or are you wanting to now become a Greek or a Hellenist or participate in that world? Are you abandoning your identity as somebody faithful to this way? Are you compromising? What are you doing? And I'm terribly sorry, I have to throw it. This reminds me so much of this. Who are you? No one of consequence. I must get used to disappointment. Okay. And it feels like, yes, I know, I have to throw Princess Bride into every sermon. I'm sorry, I apologize. It feels to me like that quote, once again, is just so brilliant. You kind of have to get used to disappointment. Because these people were wrestling, and it was really unsure at some times. Who really am I? Am I really, truly committed? Or am I selling myself out? If I participate in just this part of Roman and Greco-Roman culture, does that mean I have compromised my way with Jesus? Or can I do a little bit more? Or should I not do any at all? Back to that quote from Jeffries. Once again, one of the most fundamental questions of human existence persists as being the most important consequential. Who are you in this world? I could spend hours just sitting here for a moment, but we don't have that time. Peter answers this question, or he exhorts and encourages his readers to begin to answer that question with this. Answer the question who you are by remembering who you are. Don't forget who you actually really are in the core essence of your calling. You are chosen. Do you remember that moment when God called you, chose you, commissioned you, covenanted with you, and then destined you gave you a purpose and a direction. And then this phrase, sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus. Do you remember that Acts chapter 2 moment when the Holy Spirit came down and changed everything, gave you a whole new life, a whole new identity, a whole new purpose, a whole new worldview? Do you remember that? And to be sprinkled with his blood, which is a very odd phrase for modern ears, and I understand. It is a reference to the idea that when a covenant, a special relationship is made, a contract between two people, it is sealed in a sacrifice to let you know that this is how serious this relationship is. Blood must be shed in order for you to recognize, I'm betting my life on this covenant in this relationship. And so what Peter does is he starts off by saying, you are chosen, you are destined, you are being sanctified. 
because of your relationship with Jesus. I know you live in Rome. I know you live in Babylon. I know where you live. But this is who you are. Don't forget that. And he starts his letter by remembering who you are. And guess what? This entire world that is just so much in your face is not who you are. It seduces you. It attracts you. It overwhelms you. In some ways, you can't escape that world. No doubt. But that is not who you are, my friends. You are chosen and destined and loved and covenanted to Jesus. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You have been commissioned by the one who created this entire world. And that God lives in you. Don't forget that. You are these things. Don't forget. That is who you are. Again, I'm not telling you anything new. But you do need to be reminded. Because those forces that are around us are so seductive. And so in your face. And constantly berating us all the time. Because here's the reality. That was Babylon one day. Several hundred years later, the followers of Jesus were in a place called Rome. And Peter even calls Rome Babylon to remind them that we've been here before, my friends. These cultures are shifting. They're advancing. They're developing. They're all around us. We've been here again. We've been here before, and we're going to be here again. But guess what? We're here again. We are here yet again. We are in a new Babylon with a completely new set of cultures and ideas and ways of being, worldviews. We are here with a completely different set of economies that work very, very different from the economy that Jesus suggested that doesn't make any sense, that is unfair, that ensures that nobody has any needs or wants, any needs. We live in a place where buildings, spectacular buildings are built to awe and to inspire and to make us go, I want to work there. Well, not everybody, I understand. And we are berated on a regular basis with the ideas and the philosophies and the worldviews and the algorithms that suggest you are just one like away from being really important. And this entire push surrounds us, overwhelms us, seduces us. It's in our face. And let's just face it, we can't really get away from it. The same question exists. How much do we live in Rome when we have our identity? What do we participate in? How do we do this? And who are we essentially? One aspect of this movement in a deep technological sense is the idea that humanity is moving towards a place where our data and our information actually are more important than our very real lives. You all know this. I, you all experience this. You are all part of it. This is what we are living in. The big name for this is transhumanism, that we are moving to a place where we'll be able to upload our minds and our, the data about who we are is going to become something more important. We'll be able to transfer. It's all this science slash science fiction depending upon your philosophy and worldview. 
But some philosophers have suggested and noted that what we are essentially doing is causing us to think very, very differently about who we are now. If there is such a thing as transhumanism, and that is a better kind of human than we are now, then what are we now? It poses significant philosophical questions for the kind of lives that we live. And Megan O'Giblin, in her book, God, Human, Animal, Machine, articulates an element of what is happening to us right now that I think is extremely insightful, that really articulates the way that we should probably think. In a way, we are already living the dualistic existence that Kurzweil promised. In addition to our physical bodies, there exists somewhere in the ether a second self that is purely informational and immaterial. A data set of our clicks, purchases, and likes that lingers not in some transcendent nirvana, but rather in the shadowy dossiers of third-party aggregators. These second selves are entirely without agency or consciousness. They have no preferences, no desires, no hopes or spiritual impulses, and yet, in the purely informational sphere of big data, it is they, not we, that are most valuable and real. In other words, we have created such a world that a different identity that we have created either online, digitally, however you want to put it, is actually the real us. Is that overstating the case? Let's debate. But Megan O'Giblin, as well as other philosophers, are pointing out there's something changing to our sense of identity. So much so that Christianity Today has entitled an article, We Live in Babylon, Not in Israel. And it is here, my friends, that I remind you once again. You are chosen, destined, sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Because this is the world in which we live. This is where we are. It's astonishing. It's amazing. I want to go see it. I want to participate. I want to dive right on in. It seduces. It overwhelms. Peter would say, be faithful, my friends, in Babylon. And the way that we be faithful is to simply begin by remembering who you are. And those algorithms and those data points are not who you are. All that information is not who you are. I don't know if you can tell, that's our building right there. <laughs> so Peter opens up by simply saying, my friends, remember who you are. Your identity is really critical. And when you understand the context in which that commission and exhortation comes, you realize just how significant every single one of those words actually is. It's incredibly important. Next week, we'll talk about so how do you maintain that fidelity in the midst of that world and in the midst of that identity? How do you do it? 
And then the week after that, we'll talk about the suffering. I hope, my friends, that even though that was an extremely fast-paced survey, that in many ways, the goal and the hope is not for you to remember all the information because that would, once again, be a violation of the fundamental teaching. You can look up the information. Heck, that's why we have Google or Bing. What I want you to get a sense and remember is to become aware of all those forces that are around us and ask ourselves the question once again, who am I really in this world? What are the elements that truly make my identity who I am in the midst of the cultural, economic, political pressures and seductions all around me? Don't forget, my friends, who you really are. And as we sing and as we take communion, I hope that you remember just how beloved and chosen and destined you are. And may that identity be the truest thing about you. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we sing, my friends, please come to the table and partake. And as you do, and as you ingest the elements, be reminded once again of who you really are. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.